welcome to Traumedy. I'm your host, Nancy Norton. I'm a stand-up comedian, I'm also a registered nurse, and I'm studying therapeutic humor and give keynote presentations about the power of humor, why we need it, how it helps us get through the worst times, all the benefits of humor. There are so many, too many to mention right now, but just know it does save lives. My guest this week is Ryan Sengelis. He is the producer of the Black Hills Comedy Festival along with Zach Moss. And he not only loves comedy, but comedy loves him back. Comedy is Ryan's therapy. And this is why he is our guest this week. Enjoy episode 12. Welcome to Traumedy. My guest today is Ryan I'm going to say it right. Sangelis. Ryan Sangelis. Boom. Perfect. Did I do it? Yeah. Yeah, that was it. I love that. We met through Zach Moss, and Mm -hmm. I met you, was it four or five years ago, doing the, we called it the Presidential Comedy Festival. Yeah. Our first first attempt at a comedy festival that was an utter disaster uh, was the Presidential Festival. Yep, that's when I first met you. Yeah. Well, utter disaster. I mean, I it, I met people there. I want to just, hey, I just want to give you a little shout out because for me, I loved a lot of the experience. All the comics that came together. I met Charlie Na- Nadler. Charlie Nadler and I are still friends. I, I saw David Tribble, who I hadn't seen in years, which was really cool. And then just to be with friends and... So I just want to say thank you. I know you made a sacrifice. And the reason I wanted to have you on, Traumedy, was this last festival, which was, I think, a huge success from my pr- point of view. I don't know about, how did you feel about the most recent festival? Oh, yeah. It was it was amazing. So the, this was our third year doing it as more of a showcase style than with the competition which of course takes a ton of pressure off and everyone's just more at ease. Um, but yeah, each year, uh, Zach and I have, you know, tweaked a few things, tried a few things and just keeps getting better and better. And yeah, this, this year was a home run. It was, yeah, I agree it was completely on every level. And there was just this really amazing vibe. And I, my son is 18, tells me I'm not even allowed to use the term, but I'm taking it and running with it. Because there was a great vibe. Everybody right. was vibing. And then you had this van, and you had all of us in this van. And it was just such, I felt, I just felt at home with my people. And we, you know, went and saw these beautiful sights in South Dakota. And then at one point, you said something that touched my heart, which was, thank you all for doing this. Comedy is my antidepressant, I believe is what you said. Uh, yeah, no, that was uh, spot on. I just, the reason I even do these festivals is because, uh, yeah, it is it's such an outlet. It's such a recentering, um, and just being around people who have that talent, who have that gift. Uh, yeah, it is something that it's kind of pieced my, my soul and my life back together after other stories fell apart. Well, I want to just take that in that comedy is bringing your soul back together when things fell apart. That is amazing. And that is why I'm doing this podcast. You know, I'm studying therapeutic humor. I'm in a program, the Association of Applied Therapeutic Humor, just 
really trying to justify my life. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I stumbled on these articles about the benefits of humor, and I didn't know, I didn't know how many benefits there were. But I personally believe that humor is a language of, uh, like, a, almost like a spirit language. I don't think people always know where creativity comes from. It's just another form of creativity. And when I think about creative, I think yes. about the creator. And then personally, I'm a spiritual person, so I think I'm one with the creator. We are, we are all, I don't know, that's my belief. I know you come from a religious background. Um, I mean, pretty intense, right? You, you were in a church. Or are you comfortable talking about your religious background? Oh, yeah. No, it was, uh, I was definitely all in. I, um, well, so how far back do we want to track? I, through kind of high school and into college, um, was a star athlete, uh, you know, got to enjoy all the perks that came with that, including being invited to every party imaginable. Um, and just started drinking, started partying, having fun, moved that from high school to college. Um, but then after about five years of that, you know, kind of reliving the same night over and over and over again, that ran dry. Um, and inside of this moment of this kind of vulnerability and loss, I, I, uh, was going to a Bible study at that point. I can't exactly place how that even began. Um, I was raised Catholic, but that didn't necessarily resonate, but just good people around me. And inside of this, I, you know, made this personal commitment to Jesus. You're, you're at your peak physically, sexually, and you're getting mm -hmm. all the goodies, mm -hmm. like you said, and yet there's a, there's something not fulfilled. You're like, wait, I still wake up not feeling whole or something's missing. And then you went to Bible, you were uh, doing the Bible study. So there might, you know, and I get it, man. So at some point this um, teaching and, and, and I, hey, I'm a big fan of Jesus. Uh, I like to say Yeshua because I have uh, Jesus trauma. You know, I say Yeshua no, no, because I, I just feels different to me, the vibration of the name. And also because I grew up in the, I have Southern Baptist trauma from growing up in Springfield, Missouri, where I really was accosted on street corners, told I was going to hell as a child. And I'm like, Hi, that doesn't make sense to me. There's no way. There's no way God would send me to hell when I go because I'm a Lutheran. You know, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe they would. I don't know. No, no I, I completely agree. The whole, the name, the concept, the teachings, everything's been co-opted into uh, control. So we went from this, you know, personal relationship commitment, and I, I dove in hard. I wound up becoming a youth pastor, uh, and then I went to seminary, did five years, got my master's degree, um, and started pastoring my own church for, I think it was almost ten years. Wow! Um, but it was. And, and the initial story I think that resonated with me was this idea of forgiveness. Like I was, I was the fun party guy, but the, the fun party guy is often very reckless with other people's feelings or even their own well-being. And so I was kind of this uh, wrecking ball that, that they just, I wound up every night that <clears throat> I was going to start drinking and it was fun, 
until it wasn't. And yeah, I had a lot of regrets just with the people I had probably hurt along the way. And, and there was, it was a story of forgiveness. And for some reason that just stood off the pages to me. And I was like, that's what I want. Um, like I said, something so that filled, that filled that whatever was lacking, like you were talking about, whatever I thought I was missing, I, I needed that. Uh, hey, Ryan, you're not a piece of shit. <laughs> story of my life. You like the yeah, it was a battle. Like especially you're young and impulsive, and yeah, of course you know. And then girls are more. I don't know. For me, I do a joke. I haven't done it on stage yet. I was talking with Christy Bukley about it the other day. We were talking about oxytocin, which, you know, is that hormone that bonds us with our babies, that bonds us with our lovers. And it's like, I don't care what you put inside of me. If you're my gynecologist, a little part of me falls in love with you. So I'm sure there you broke a lot of hearts, right? <laughs> there were probably women falling in love with you or girls if you're both like when you're in high school and stuff. You know, I'm guessing. I don't know. But and who knows? Like, yeah, you're you got a lot of testosterone. It's like, hey, you know, I, I get the only insight I've gotten about testosterone from my point of view is people I know who are trans women who are uh, trans female to male. And they start taking testosterone and they say, all they want to do is fight and fuck, you know, and <laughs> stop talking. <laughs> well, see, that was I, I said we kept living the same night over and over. The plan was always, you know first go out get wasted like just drink as much as you could i don't know why the goal was as much instead of hey let's just get to a good place but it was so we had accomplished goal one goal two was then you know to hook up with somebody and because we accomplished goal one goal two rarely works because you know what's less attractive than a guy who just can barely speak and then goal three was just yeah find a fight find a fight get you know, be a dick to someone until they wanted to punch you in the face. And I was pretty good at that. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just this cycle and we'd wake up the next day laughing and, oh my God, can you believe we did that? And that, that was that cycle of just, this is fun. We're young. It's crazy. Um, but you know, after, after doing it for five years straight, <laughs> this is stupid. <laughs> this is, this is predictable. This is getting this too is, predictable. Well, I commend you for, I love when people are vulnerable like you are, like, cause yeah, no, it's not easy to admit like, uh, yeah, I did this and I probably hurt people that did maybe who knows if they deserved it or not. But <laughs> the point is I really commend you for being honest about it. And then, you know, you have healthy shame, which a conscience, you have a conscience about it. You're like, Oh, I don't feel good about it. And then, but Jesus forgives and don't have to live in the past with all that shame, maybe. And it, and it would have been it would have been great had the you know if you get that part of the story and the you know the self corrected nature of that. The issue is all the rest of it comes with it, and now you're starting to get indoctrinated into ways of thinking, indoctrinated into you know religion's a great mirror if you want to reflect on yourself but it's a terrible pair of glasses to look out to the rest of the world and say, and this is how you should live. And this yeah. is how you should live. But that's what religion becomes. It becomes, you know, the lenses through which everyone's going to judge the world. And I, it did. I started slipping into that and 
you know, there's something super empowering about the idea of I have the story. Everybody else hasn't figured out what the story is, but I figured it out. And it's, you know, this overlaid story of Christianity. And now I see things clearly. And my goal is to make everybody else see it clearly also. And that judge that, you know, when they say we judge other people, it really does hurt us. Uh, it, it, it causes a discord inside of us and a lack of oneness. I don't know. I have to watch my shit too, because I'm, I have to just make sure I say, this is my belief right now, or this is my experience right now. I got to make sure I don't slip into any like religion of one here, the Nancy Norton religion. Cause I have like, I have that sense of, ah. you know, I've done enough mushrooms where I think I know stuff. Okay. <laughs> I, have to, I have to watch my stuff. Right. Interestingly, uh, you know, because I was, I was very conservative, very kind of straight line. And I could quote all the Bible verses at you to tell you why this was wrong and that was wrong. But the one thing that kind of started to uh, unplug me or unravel me from that was actually at seminary. And it was a very conservative seminary also, but there was just two different professors who weren't pushing their agenda on me, weren't like, you know, but they would, they would kind of ask you to ask the next question. I'm like, well, okay, well, if this is true, well, what about this? And what about this? And they, you know, very gently just started guiding me into pulling threads on on some of these definitive answers I had. Um, that's it. They, uh, one, of the, one of the phrases one of my professors would use is he would, he would go through this whole soliloquy or, you know, a teaching. And at the end of it, be like, but how would I know? Like, but what do I know? Just kind of reintroducing re humility into all of it. Like, here, take this as my word or take this as what I have learned, um, but not as the ultimate truth that you need to cling on to. And that, yeah, that shifted a lot of things for me and helped me um, step out of myself again. Yeah. So you, it kind of, kind of cracked, cracked you open and you became more of a curious person rather than, the, the preacher. I don't know. Is that is that how? It yeah, is? that's I, that's one hundred percent correct. So I kind of traded, you know, the certainty and the story of like partying and drugs and you know all that to well, but now I have religion and I have this and I was the same person. It was finally you know during that time where it's like you might not know, you probably don't <laughs> know, and you need to investigate this idea of just. Humbly approaching life again. I'm laughing because I just feel, I feel like there's a bit of humor in those moments, you know, when you catch yourself, like it's almost like when you almost fall, but you don't. And did, when did humor intersect? Did humor start coming in with when you, it wasn't funny at the time when, when the story started to unravel because ultimately, and it's funny you talked about why would God send me to hell? That was kind of the first brick that came out of the wall that started to make the whole thing shake and like this concept of hell is ridiculous. Like if any of these things we think about God are true, then making people suffer for all eternity doesn't even remotely square with that. There's no um, balance on those scales. So, I can't. Yeah. And so that brick came out and then, you know, the Bible is to be taken literally that brick came out. And after a little while, the whole thing kind of just crumbled down, which at the time was a terrifying process. Like this is, this was supposed to be true. This was my life. This is everything I'd given to. 
Um, so at the time it wasn't as fun or funny, but looking back now, thinking who the hell was that person from my perspective at this point is, yeah, I get, I get some joy out of laughing about that at this point. But I appreciate what you're saying too. When we're disoriented, I mean, I bring up this on a lot of episodes because I guess I need to process this person. I spent 11 years with a, a sociopath. I didn't know they were a sociopath. The safe house had to tell me that. I mean, that's not a fun feeling because it's really scary and disorienting and what is real and it's your head is spinning. It's an Alice in Wonderland, uh, stranger in a strange land uh, feeling, you know, like, ooh, what do I have that's solid? Mm. But it did strip me away to a very core part of me. Cause I had to strip. I get. I just kept stripping away everything, like externally referenced stuff, and then like what is left at that little shaky core of a person. You know, you did. Did you get stripped down to the the nougat center of yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the terrifying part is I didn't. I didn't know if there was one in there. You know, I, um, I got really heady, even when I was still doing the pastoring thing and stuff, just started reading a ton of philosophy, um, psychology, all of that stuff. Because, yeah, when stuff starts spinning, I'm like, I'll think my way out of this, right? Yeah. Um, but it actually had the opposite effect. It just, everything would deconstruct, everything would deconstruct. And I think the terrifying part was, what is at the bottom of this? Like, what am I going to find? Or the more scary part is, am I going to find nothing? Um, because because you, you, you start to wonder, have I ever been living my own story? Like, have I ever been living uh, who I want to be or who I am? Whatever that is, that's obviously a wild concept in itself. But, or have I just been, you know, once I started getting good at sports, I was the jock. And I played the role of the jock and, and, uh, you know, there's a, like I said, a lot of hurts with that, but at some point it became, it wasn't even fun to do anymore, but I wanted to keep doing it because I had these expectations from other people to like, well, this is, this is what you do. This is who you are. And the same thing when I started to step away from the church I was leading, you know, people were like, this is who you are. This is what you do. So, um, yeah, yeah was, you had very, very clear, your role, your role was very clear. And yeah, I, yeah. I, I think you can probably tell I am not a hyper intellectual or an intellectual. I, am, uh, <laughs> I learned from, this is why I'm doing this peer to peer learning. I am doing this really for me. I love learning. I am a curious person. I've always been, but <clears throat> I'm not, I'm not uh, one to have the discipline to sit and read like you are a scholar you ha- you have a scholarly mind you you that's your you know that is a, another part of your identity is being highly intelligent i'm imagining because you are and that it's weird i feel like the it's just the perfect irony of life because it it can block you from knowing yourself because the brain almost like i'm seeing this short-circuiting uh, computer up there going around and around and around and not letting you go down inside because of either fear, like it's been a part of, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it comes out of a survival trait or if it's just naturally, you just are a scholar. 
but I do feel for, I have a lot of scholarly friends. I, I love hanging out with smart people, but I kind of can tell it's hard for them to access their feelings sometimes or access their heart or access their body. And there was obviously a time I was deep in my feelings and like, if it felt good, <laughs> I was going to do it. It didn't matter the repercussions. I was just going to do it. And then, yeah, the, I was like, well, I'll, I'll think my way out of this. I'll, you know, plenty of smart people have wrestled with these same ideas. We'll read them. And again, it just had the opposite effect. It, it just emphasized how little I know, like how little I understand, um, which the beginning parts of that are terrifying, but something shifts, something changes where you just become comfortable in not knowing almost, almost a, a relief and like, you know what? Nobody knows. Nobody knows any of this stuff. And so I think it was at that point where kind of run out of answer. I was like, now I'm free to just live, to oh. enjoy moments, not to overthink things, not to deconstruct everything that comes in my path. And that's when it, that was the release. That was the actual, to use, to use a religious word, that was the salvation of like, now I can, now I can start to live again. Oh, I'm just smiling and I can feel this sense of peace throughout my whole body thinking those, like, I thinking is probably the wrong word. Just, was it Socrates who said that? A wise man knows he does not know, or who, whose quote is that? I just... I, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure plenty of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody says it. I don't know, but it's so, like, I can just feel that sense of relaxation. Like, okay, I've exhausted, uh, so, you're exhausted. You've exhausted all these avenues and got to the place of it's okay <sighs> to just not know. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, sweet salvation. And yeah. so, and, and that's, you know, jumping ahead to the, quote unquote, happy ending, but there was the hard part and the dark places inside of that. That's where I actually started to connect more and more with, like, like we've talked about humor and just laughter and not taking everything so seriously. Um, Cause it was when yeah. you wake up and your first questions are what is existence? You're going to carry that. You're going to carry the weight of that you know, throughout your day. Whereas humor, I, I tried to get into it myself. We wound up doing some improv and stuff like that, but just watching people who have like a true skill at it, who can take, because uh, cause really all of comedy, you're just, you're observing the world. You're taking these observations and you're being like, this is what's funny about it. This is what's, um, you know, that we can laugh at ourselves, that we can laugh at the absurdity of it all and there's something so communal and so bonding inside of that because not just comedy it's it's live comedy you know uh a shared experience yeah the shared experience i was just saying that i can't say enough about this set i had last night and the set i had up there that i have to admit i use some very aggressive humor which i want to <laughs> look at here in a minute uh because therapeutic humor is supposed to be affiliative, uh, not aggressive, but I did some really aggressive stuff that I want to <laughs> explore. I uh, would love to get your take on, yeah. but I was just thinking about how back to your existential crisis kind of 
I I do think is there with humor or just with a lightness. I think we can contemplate things with lightness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helps me. I think I'm at an advantage because I've helped many people die. You know, uh, in my 20s, I really got it that I am gonna die. And I did see a lot of peace at the end of people's lives. Uh, I I could almost go. I could almost see what they were seeing. I'm I'm not saying I'm psychic, but I feel like I am highly intuitive and attuned. And I could feel this lightness. And I'm just like, ooh, I just think that's gonna be pretty nice to return to spirit energy. That's my belief. But I'm just saying, I think we can contemplate these things without that burdensome heaviness but it just depends on where you are on the on the process and 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 i have heard people talk about the dark night of the soul like it's almost like uh dante's inferno of i'm reading a book what is it called the way of integrity and it's a little bit of a workbook but it's based on dante's divine comedy of going you've got if you're going you know that country song if you're going through hell keep on going and you will come through that other side but very few people keep on going. They often want to turn back to the familiar and get, you know, s- drop some anchors and like, this is what my, I need. You know, my dad was like that. He, I was like, dad, why can't you have an open mind? And he goes, ah, I don't want to work that hard. And, you know, that's his right. He no, was honest. Even, even a shitty existence feels good. if It's, we take comfort in the weirdest things. And, and yeah, just... Anyone from the outside can look in and be like, that looks awful, but it's familiar to us. Unless unless you're just born with that adventurous spirit, and I know plenty of people that have that too. It's new change. It's just, it's scary because we presume it's going to go bad or it's going to be worse. And so, yeah, we backtracked into, you know, this, my life's a pile of shit, but it's my pile of shit, so. <laughs> yeah, right. That does have a judgment feeling to it, I guess. I'm not, I'm not judging. I just that's that's everyone's right to be at whatever place that they are. But I love, I love, I do love vibing with people that have gone through hell and come out the other side. Those are a lot of my friends, and frankly, a lot of comedians. Uh, have, that's why you know, traumedy is yeah. Tr- it's we've we've often have a trauma or a big trauma our sadness in our past and who doesn't, but we come through the other side and we mix the lightness of humor or some other creativity. So here we are, the, the, you know, everything crashed, your world was like, I don't understand. And then you just were like, I got to get back to a place of knowing, you know, how I used to just know stuff. And then it's like, at some point you're exhausted. I don't know anything. Nobody does. And it's okay. And then from there, you're just open and free and you're, it, you're present. I would say that's another book I love, The Power of Now, being in the present moment. And that is one of my little mottos when I teach improv is I have these necklaces I have people wear. They're like dog tags. And they say, I am in the present moment. And on the back it says, for now. Like, it's a little joke. Like, you don't have to do it all the time. Just do it for now. And it's always now. So so you're present. You're really present. You're like, I'm open. I'm present. I'm just here. I don't have to be somewhere else figuring everything out or anticipating where I go when I die or where I was before I was born or what this all means. I can just enjoy what is right now. Am I putting words in your mouth? 
no, no, that's spot on. And I'll, and I'll say, like, I know other people that go through journeys that come out in different spots and stuff like that. Things worked out so well for me <laughs> in, in my life, meaning I wound up, uh, I left my first marriage. I found uh, a person I could not have created in a simulation, you know, any more ideal for who, who I would want to spend the rest of my life with. Um, you know, so many things fell into place. And so I don't, any, any story I ever tell or any, uh, heaven forbid advice that I would ever give. It's always under the caveat of, I don't listen to me. Like so many things stacked up, so many things stacked up in line so perfectly. Of course I would be like, and do this and do that. And I, you know, every, every story goes different directions and happens in different ways. Um, so all I, all I offer is my, my, my process and my journey through it. And, uh, yeah, wish people the best of luck. Yeah, take from it what you will. But I feel like mm -hmm. as as unique as we are, there's also these common experiences. Like, I mean, who doesn't have this experience where it's like when you need a phone call the most, there are no phone calls coming in. You know, when there's that desperate feeling or neediness or, um, you know, like when we're in a place of I'm okay, I, this is, I have not manifested a healthy, loving relationship of that level in this lifetime because I don't feel I've been okay. Like, I feel like I'm still not there yet. I'm attracting people that also maybe are not okay uh, in a different way, and we're having these – I used to call them complimentary issues, but then my ex-boyfriend called them uncomplimentary issues. <laughs> but anyway, it sounds like you were in a place of – okayness and how did you meet your your wife did you um at the gym <laughs> okay We're both. yeah so that was that was the other thing i've always you know from my athletics early on and then just into vanity in general i've always just lifted and worked out and and been way too vain and egotistical about that whole process um which now is you know, as I'm getting older every year, as, as we tend to do, <laughs> and I'm fighting, I'm fighting against how, how I'm paddling upstream and losing, <laughs> losing ground on that. It is um, humbling, isn't it? I mean, I have a little bit of a fitness thing as well. Like my ex-husband was a Marine who taught me to run. And then I, I've run a couple of marathons and I, I do like fit. I I value fitness very highly, and I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. I mean, part of it definitely is an ego identity thing. Of I am a fit person, but then again, it's okay to want to be the best you can be as far as your physical form and be able to do things that you like doing. Like I can ride a bicycle to, uh, you know, or I used to when I was traveling on the road. I would be out in the middle of nowhere, but I knew I could run 25 miles if I ran out of gas. I could get somewhere if I had. There is something about it that's it's not all bad to be fit, but I get the identity part. And it is humbling. Oh, my gosh. Ryan, I am 62, so I am watching the sag of my skin, and then also my heart just does not 
my heart is telling me I don't really like running, but I'm still making it run. <laughs> I'm still like, no, come on. My, my heart has told me that from the day I was born. Like, <laughs> I am not a runner. I don't, that long distance, whatever stuff, it's, yeah, that's not me. Yeah. Well, it's okay. But anyway, you met at the gym, and I mean, you're both like there because you're saying, I value, I value fitness. I value, I want to be the best I can be physically. And I mean, it's, and it's attractive yes. to you and it's okay. No, right. It's, I mean, that's great. an attraction. And, and it was, it was an immediate connection with us. She was kind of just first getting into it. Um, she was a little stick bean pole growing up. And uh, after her second kid um, decided, yeah, she wanted to go. Uh, change that and so she got into it I had been at this gym for uh, probably 15 years previously and so all of a sudden this new very attractive woman shows up and the last thing I want to be is the douchey gym guy who goes over and <laughs> you know but and we laugh about let this. me spot you babe yeah <laughs> yeah. Well, we laugh about this now because she's actually, she's a personal trainer and her, her, her gym time far surpasses mine now. She, we train out of, uh, she trains out of our garage. We turned it into a gym and she trains way more than I do. But at the time she would come in and just lift her legs every day, every day, which, uh, again, now she knows you're not supposed to do that. And so literally the first conversation we had, I went over and I'm like, there's nothing more obnoxious than a gym bro coming over to tell you anything about what you're doing. I'm like, but you need to give your legs a rest. Like you're not going to grow. <laughs> I'm not going to do what you want unless you give them a break. And so. Oh, cool. Then, yeah. So you came over and you, you kind of self, you did a little self deprecating thing, which is very sexy, you know, like, Hey man, I know I, I you know, I know what I'm doing and it's wrong and I'm doing it anyway. Right. And it, right. and it yes. was out of like, I really can't watch you do this and know that I know your goal. Hey, that's cool. Right. So did she laugh? Uh, well, she didn't, she didn't, uh, I don't know, hit me in the face or something to go away. Um, no, it did. We kind of just, that was conversation one. And it's just kind of real quick, you know, this is, this is who I am. This is who you are. And then, yeah, just every day literally every day from there um we just talk at the gym uh it got to the point where like man i've been here for two and a half hours and i've lifted for an hour <laughs> slowly that kind of just built and built and then one day we're like oh shit <laughs> <laughs> we is, have a thing yeah yeah so <clears throat> i actually told her about your last episode where you talked more and more about um your marriage to your sociopath and some of the things you had said. And she's like, Oh my God, I have more words for what I went through now. Oh, really? She, she was, she was married to an extremely manipulative, extremely just sociopathic guy. Um, oh man. I am so sorry, but I'm glad for her to know it helped so much. It helped me so much to make sense of stuff. I took everything personally and it really, I mean, it does impact me personally. I mean, she definitely did stuff to me personally. However, it really isn't, eh, there's something in their psyche that is, woo, you, it could be anyone, but
but it was us. And then if you had kids with, I'm sorry that she's gone through that, but I'm glad she, I'm, thank you for sharing that feedback. Cause that is the reason I do think sometimes, am I just saying this? Am I venting? Am I taking advantage of my platform? But I really feel like with those, uh, the sociopathic people, and apparently it's very common, more common than we knew. I feel like it's, I've heard 10% of the population. And I just think they're so good at what they do that we, we doubt ourselves so much. And we did, that's the thing. Part of it, we did do some things, and some of it, it's very confusing. So it helps. I'm glad she got some language for it and hopefully might lead her to, to learn more just to kind of get peace around it, to get rid of some shame and doubt around it. Is that and it's gaslighting a, it's stuff? A while. It, a while to it, see like wow. Because you don't you don't want to believe like that you were part of that or that you allowed that. In the same way I didn't want to believe that I was, you know, perpetuating a lot of really hurtful, awful stories inside of this religious framework. I'm like, ah, but that you do, and you are participating. Yeah, in that's right. So there is there's that huge, yep. you know, mm -hmm. forgiveness of yourself. Just being like, you know what? Why should I have known? Or why? How am I going to hold yep. myself, you know, accountable forever for a choice I made at 21 years old or 19 years old? Like, at some point, you do have to be like, yeah, I I fucked that one up pretty good. So. Let's, let's do better. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and, and I don't know if this is true for you, but what I have felt, you know, when I go, oh, I'm do I did my best. I am right now. I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm not saying I'm perfect yeah. now or that I figured it all out. But the more I can realize and forgive myself, I can now put that to other people and go even like I say in my higher self moments where I'm OK, where I'm not feeling unsafe. I can have more compassion because sociopaths, they didn't want to be sociopaths. Honestly, it's a part of their makeup. It's a part of their, there's a powerlessness to that too. They didn't ask for that to be, I don't think they asked to be sociopath. I don't know. I mean, that's a whole weird, I've had mushroom journeys where I've like got this download that it's a soul agreement. I'm going to go out on a limb here and people are going to hate this, but I'm going to say it. It's this, I, here's what I got from my, you know, when I was on some psychedelic therapy, because I said, may I know what the what is why, why these people are here. And it's to teach us. And it's a it's a weird soul agreement where they're very cut off from their conscience and higher power. And this is what came to me. Maybe this is just the way my my mind made sense of it, that they are here to teach. They because they taught me my mother had a lack of empathy, a lack of compassion and uh she taught me so much empathy when I kept trying to reach out to her and fix her and I couldn't, and I kept trying to fix these other people, but it grew something in me. It like grew empathy and it taught me empathy and it, I don't know, man, I feel like there's a part of them teaching us to be healers and I don't get it, but no, that's me. I mean, maybe just making be, sense of it. I do. Anyway, I do, I do have compassion. Uh, I do have, I should be thankful because he set the bar so low that, you know, all I had to do was be a decent human being, and I seem like a prince. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet you're, like, so much gratitude. It was, you it was the craziest thing. I would water? do the most <gasps> simple things, like, well, I love you. Of course I would do this for you. And she would just react, like, you're the best. <laughs> like, no, 
this is this is how it's supposed <laughs> to work. This is this is what it's supposed to look like. So. Oh, so she appreciates it every day. Like, wow, there's like empathy. If it's not there, it is crazy making, man. But yeah, so all I was trying to get at with that long version of what associate I don't understand but trying to have compassion for everybody like when we have compassion for ourselves or we have forgiveness for ourselves like I really know my ex was that was the best she could do that was the best my mom could do I do believe that with all my heart that was the very best that they could do even though it, it hurt me and I don't wish it on anyone but I did learn a lot from it and I've grown a lot so no, I'm trying to trust my path it's the more you can release any uh, anger, anxiety, whatever, from the person that caused you those things, you know, that's, an, that's another degree of separation to where you're, you're more whole from that. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. You, they, yeah, they be free. Any, and once, once someone doesn't have any that. power over you anymore, then it's, their story can be their story. And it's, it's nice. It's nice to be able to just, you know, not even have to think about it. Yeah, wish them well. Uh, yep, and be on our way. I love it. So you, okay, so humor, how about humor? How's humor, did humor is play a role in your relationship? And then when, when did you start doing improv? I'm curious, like, as part of your, I'm guessing, I'm saying as part of your healing journey, but I don't know that that is true. I don't, I, I, I got to watch that I want to make things Tell no, me no, how humor healed sure. you, Ryan. Uh, I have to tell you this first because humor is not necessarily at all a part of my relationship with my beautiful wife. Um, and she she loves, you know, she loves comedy. She loves whatever. But when we were doing um, improv, and I'll kind of get to that in a second, uh, probably the meanest thing anyone's ever said to me, and she didn't mean to, but, uh, you know, in improv, there's a bunch of different forms and styles and games we would play. And so we would do some that had singing, right? Of course, you're going to do some singing. And she goes, every time I come watch you and you guys do a singing game, she's like, do you remember when you were like watching a movie with your parents and like a sex scene came on the movie and it was the most awkward thing in the world? Oh. <laughs> you just wanted to leave or it to be over. I'm like, yeah, she's like, that's how I feel when you sing in front of people. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I, I know, I, I know I have Ouch. a, I have a terrible was, singing that... voice, but I kind of lean into it anyway and just, been, you know, boisterous about how bad it is. Um, so I think she was just trying to, yeah, she was trying that's, to that's part of the fun of it. Like, hey, this is, this is a familiar feeling. And I'm like, that's a terrible feeling. So, um, <laughs> Let me just tell you how, how let me tell you how cringy it is to watch you say it. From the moment she said well, that, I yeah. my efforts. I'm like, uh, oh, you have no idea. I can make this way worse. <laughs> and, and, and she leaned into <laughs> Good for you. I'm glad you overcame it because, yeah, I bet that was, a, I bet it was something you had to kind of work uh, through just well, a and, little bit, yeah, right? The way like, she said ouch. it, there was clearly, there was no uh, malicious intent to hurt me whatsoever. But I'm like, that may be the most like blatantly <laughs> awful thing someone said to me, but 
Well, can I tell you what I thought you were going to say is that she said you weren't funny. And I was like, oh, no, oh, well, that would be the I end gotta, of the relationship. I got that, I would too. Be like, That's oh, when no. I started to try to do stand-up. <laughs> um, so let me let me trace it a little bit. So oh. kind of the last couple years, I'm, I've unplugged from most of my religious stories at that point. I'm still a pastor of this church, but it's very focused on community, very focused on dialogue. I I would give maybe like a 15-minute teaching and then we would sit around tables and just discuss like hey this is how this resonated i was much more interested in sort of the psychological aspects of the way god interacts with us than proving whether god is real or defending the christian narrative so so it, it would have been especially in rapid city it would have been labeled a very liberal probably outside the borders of any kind of traditional christianity anyway um, but in that process, uh, a guy started coming to the church. He was a lawyer. Him and I became friends. And then he, he let me know that he had <clears throat> spent a couple years at Second City in Chicago. He was teaching there for a little while and stuff like that. And this is, I think he was there uh, like when Amy Poehler and Tina Fey and those people were there. So he would tell these stories and, and we're like, holy cow. So wow. uh, we were meeting in this church building and it was kind of an open sanctuary with we just used tables and chairs that we could move out. So he's like, hey, I'm going to start this improv group. Do you mind if we practice here? I'm like, no, go ahead. And so he did that for a couple months, and they finally show ready. And I went to their first show, and I watched it, and I'm like, this is – and I'd never been to live improv before. I'm like, this is the greatest thing in the world. I, I, have, to, I have to be part of this. It's just the creativity and the spontaneity – wittiness, all of it just was like, I, it, something resonated with me and I'm like, that looks like so much fun. Um, and so, yeah. And the, it, the presence too, like you have, it's like rock climbing, man. You have to be in the moment, really actively listening, you know, interacting the connection too. I love the connection with improv if you're really in the flow of it. And I know a lot yes. of stand-up comics love to make fun of improv I love improv. I love improv and I like to do improv inside my stand-up, which I mean a lot of comics. And, and they do, don't even realize and that's the thing. For they me, don't that's even, the they, best part. They shit on it, and then they don't even realize like you're doing improv. You're just doing it by yourself. And, which and and Yeah, yeah. Well, with an audience. Yeah. You're doing it with an audience. And come and you're doing it more in Obviously, like, I mean, this is kind of a thing, too, when you go between both those genres. If you take your stand-up into improv, you can get a little, you can be known as a little too, yeah, controlling. You're not yielding. And so I think a lot of us with control issues, pref we prefer stand-up because we get to be in control of the whole story. And yeah. we have the microphone. But I love the... I love the kind of interactive, like, oh, I was going here, but you're going there, and the adaptability piece where, I mean, it's just the epitome of being in the present moment to me, and that's where the joy, that is one of the things I do say during my, I do mm -hmm. keynotes about the power of humor, like, that is where the joy is in life, right here, right, right. now, it's not in the future or the past, it's, it's here, and nothing brings you right here, right now, and for any better than improv. And for a comedian, when so I, you when felt I that. Even stand-up yeah. comedians, all of their like favorite moments weren't, hey, I told this joke I'd written five years ago, and I knew, because, you know, if you told a joke 
you know, a hundred times, you know where the landing's going to be, you know where the pop's going to be. But when you get up there and you are, you're just interacting with the crowd. It's a lot more, you know, free and loose. Uh, yeah, that's when all of a sudden you're tapping into that creative part of yourself a little more and you don't know what's going to come out of it. And those are, yeah, those are some of the best. Um, I, so one of our, one of our mutual friends, uh, Sam Allen. Uh, and Sam is like a comics, comics, comic, you know, he is, God, he's a, ah, he's a genius. Uh, Yeah. So Sam talent, he's creating these moments up there just out of the blue. Uh, you know, we've had him up to the festival you're talking about a couple of times and there's just these wild moments that, what do you want to say? They manifest or not, uh, last year, wasn't this year. He was just going through a set and there was a band playing outside and a guy comes walking through with a tuba, which is odd enough as it is. And of course, Sam's like notices it and he's like, oh, hey, the band's outside. You're late. And just without missing a beat, the guy's like, oh, I'm not with the band. And he got 20 minutes out of that. 20 minutes out of this guy's walking around with the tuba. At one point, he has the guy playing the tuba, you know, kind of to his jokes. And yeah, it, it was, I could see it that. Was hilarious. It was <laughs> And that's what that's why yes. like, even even when I talk to comics, I'm like, you don't think you like improv, but it's when you do some of that with the crowd that I think you feel more alive and into it anyway. Yeah, I don't know why they I don't understand why there's that thing about not liking improv. I really don't. I I don't even know why that ever came to be, but it is a thing. Well, I was, think it's just uh, thinking trying of the to same thing. or, uh, separate yourself. Uh, your last set that you just did up here, um, where you started it off uh, razzing the bartenders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was uh, truly, I have an inner teenager, so I'm doing a lot of inner family systems work. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's parts work where you're like, my inner teenager yeah. protects my inner child. And my stuff, I mean, this is for real. I was triggered. I was triggered. I was standing at that bar. I don't know how many minutes. And they were waiting on people that kept coming up behind me. And I'm like, I'm right here. It's like they can't see me. And it triggered my childhood stuff. You know, my album is fourth of three, which is my birth order. You know, people, like I'm the fourth of three children that were wanted. Anyway, (laughs) I kind of triggered all my stuff about not being the preferred child. Or like, I'm not getting the goodies. I'm not, I just wanted ginger ale. All I want is a ginger ale. And I really was getting fucking pissed. I was, and I was getting wounded. So my inner child was all wounded, my inner teenager, and her name is Virginia Vengeance. And Virginia Vengeance was just, like, getting fucking mad. So I had to, like, I'm like, well, fuck. I was like, okay, Kate, you're she's six feet tall. And I said, Kate, will you please get me a ginger ale? Steve comes up beside me, Steve Vanderplug. And then Kate goes to one other station. She gets a ginger ale in, like, three seconds and hands, you know, comes back. And then they go to Steve who came up behind me. I swear to God, at least 10 minutes after I've been there, maybe more. And they go, what are you having? And he goes, I'll have a beer. And she's having, what are you having? And looked at me like she exists, you know? And I was like, it was because I've, I've, I've talked to other women. My, my, even I was telling my therapist about this afterwards. Cause I said, Oh man, I got to look at this. Cause I really was angry. Anyway, she said, yeah, at about age 50, she's in her mid fifties. She's like at age 50 it has it happens and 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 you I don't know 
you just stop, you become invisible to men. And, um, so anyway, I, that had happened just so that, so that was real. Go ahead. That, that moment for me, just to watch you do that was, it was perfect. From, <laughs> and I've listened to, I've listened to, um, your podcast. That moment was perfect for what I hear you trying to do because you took a very real issue, which is, you know, ageism and you were, you were just looked over again and again. And it was clear you were very triggered with this. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't playing, but I was, I mean, I I was. But you invited the group as a whole into this moment where, and we were, we were crying, laughing. I mean, at one point you were talking about how you're going to. I was going to anally violate them without a safe word. And I can't remember how, but I, and then I was like, whoa, that is so aggressive. But they stood at attention. And then one of them, I think, I couldn't hear what he said, but I thought it was a safe word. Like he yelled out something and I was like, that's not it. And I was just, and I go, don't mess with a retired lesbian. And I, I do that. And then, and I, there was a part of me that just really wanted to raise the vibration for alternative lifestyles and talk about it in an empowered way. But then also, and there's just something I have, like, you guys, I know it feels like you run the world, but I need you to know that you don't. And also, uh, start seeing old ladies, you know, or old, not a lady. I'm not a lady, but old females, you know, I call myself a she they. But anyway, there was a part of me doing that for anyone who has felt marginalized by misogynistic uh, young men. You know what I mean? Like, ugh, I'm not just here for you to look at, to have sex with, to whatever, flirt with. I am a whole whole person. I still have value. But anyway, that was aggressive humor. And that definitely, but I think that aggressive humor, if you're going like against the powers that be, which I would say it is a white patriarchy. I think we still can agree on that. I feel like somehow it's okay. And it was done in a way that was so over the top uh, that obviously afterwards, those guys came running up to me. Like, can I get you a tequila? Can I get you a ginger? Like the guy brought me a ginger ale with a lime in it. I don't know. Could have been other, he could have spit in it. I don't know. <laughs> but I don't no, think so. I really just... felt like they actually enjoyed it. I felt like it's a way they could hear it. It was a way that we all laughed together. I felt like it discharged my energy. It felt like it evened the playing field just for a little bit. I don't know. What's your and take? They, no, and they they learned in that moment, you know, something that they would not have learned any other way. And I do, uh, you know, as I talked about, you know, comedy being my therapy, I feel like it is such this powerful, amazing tool um, that can bring truths into people's lives in a way that nothing else can, because it does, it disarms people. If you're laughing, if you're whatever, it's it's hard to, at the same time, keep your walls up, um, stay defensive. I have, <clears throat> I have a good friend, he's this little Irish philosopher, probably one of the smartest guys I've ever, ever met. Um, and he's, he's kind of still in religious circles, but kind of trying to bring it down from the inside. If that makes any sense. It does to me. Uh, Yeah. My son wants to go into the police academy to change it from the inside. He's a child of, you know, uh, now he's a man. I have to say he's 18. He's a, he's a man of color and yeah, George Floyd changed his life. So He's like, Mom, I got to go in. I want to 
you know, go in and change it from the inside. So this guy's doing the same thing. He's he's going in. He's he's inside the religious. Yeah, he's he's staying he's staying inside, and, and he's his uh, brand or his uh, approach. He called it pyrotheology, which is you know we're gonna burn it all down and then see what's left over, which of course the religious institution doesn't like. But he stressed this a thousand times. He's like, if you can if you can approach it in a way that disarms people, um, they will listen. Not everybody, and you know, you're gonna get plenty of pushback. And he's like, the easiest way to do that is humor. If you can if you can bring people to a place where they're laughing, where they're enjoying it and seeing, you know, the absurdity of some things, that's they're going to connect with that. They're going to remember that more. So, which, you know, had I walked over to the bar and, you know, grabbed one of those guys by the shirt and be like, why aren't you fucking serving my friend Nancy? <laughs> uh, you know, that would have made an impact, but not in the same way as you going through doing your whole, you know, bringing, bringing everybody into it. And you, and, it, and like I said, it was clear. This was a real thing. This has happened. This was coming from a place of, 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 uh, of hurt, very like, re- yeah, yeah I, very I mean, recent hurt. Yeah, but you you towed that line so perfectly, where all of us were just on your side, including them, including the them. It, yeah, right there, and they're like, um, and that's, I mean, that's from what I understand, what you're trying to do with this podcast and everything. That's therapy. That's reconciling. That's hey, we can all gather around this thing. Um, and I think I wrote. I was, that's what I had said to all of you guys in the van. I'm like, you guys are my therapists. If you are, you come up here, you bring this gift, you bring this ability to draw us into these places of laughter. Talking about a wide range of things, some I connect with, some, you know, are foreign to me. But through that process, as much as I can look at the world and be like, it's still dark, it's still fucked up, I still don't know if there's a point for us being here, it's okay. It's okay. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. At least it makes it manageable, right? It kind of gives us, yeah, that resource. Oh, that's the way you said it. At the beginning, I said, you said therapy is your antidepressant. That was probably my projection because it is my antidepressant. <laughs> so it was therapy. It was- that's the way you phrased it. You said, mm-hmm. you said, Comedy is my therapy. Yeah. And you guys are my therapists. (laughs) We're we're a bunch of fucked up therapists. But you know what I hear? Most therapists are a little bit fucked up. So why can't, you know, like they always say that. When you're in therapy, the most fucked up person in the room is the therapist. (laughs) I I think most of the people I know that are therapists were the ones that went through therapy. That got that experience from like, this is an amazing skill. I'd love to transfer this and, you know, pay it forward again. Yeah. And that adage, we teach best that which we need to learn. I'm Mm -hmm. doing that with this podcast. I, as a comedian, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I have to learn to laugh more, more often. I, I hate to say there was a time, especially right after that breakup when, I mean, I was, like I said, it was dense. I felt so heavy and I had this beautiful child and, I just wanted him to have a good life, and I didn't want to be this heavy mom with a furrowed brow because I would catch my reflection in my phone every now and then going, oh, God, I didn't know I looked so miserable. I was miserable. 
And so luckily I was also losing my memory. And <laughs> I mean, I say that luckily because it made me, I started researching neuroplasticity and somehow the algorithm of my search went to neuropathways of humor. And that is when I learned how humor can get you out of a fight, flight, freeze response. It can help you do creative problem solving. It can you know, lift your mood. It, it does all these beautiful things. It's a, it gives you endogenous morphine. It's a painkiller. And I started that I just made an intention in my family value. And again, it's always weird when you're just one, when you're just a one mother with one child, you know, to even remember, we are a family, you know, of two people. And so I'm a big percentage of the family. (laughs) I mean, I have a responsibility (laughs) here to shift this. And it did. It changed the way I approached a lot of stuff. I just started making an intention, even though, you know, like fake it till you make it. I didn't feel funny. I didn't feel light. But I forced myself to, like, play a little bit more, like just with my son in the simplest of power struggles, trying to get socks on a toddler who's headbutting me in the chest while he's sitting in my lap. I mean, eventually I'm like, you don't need socks. We just bundled them up and start throwing them at each other. Like, let's have a sock bomb fight and take this energy and go to school without socks. Go to preschool without socks. Come on. (laughs) So comedy, yeah, definitely has been my uh, savior, I, I would say. You know, one of my saviors. And I, Yeshua, love the teachings. I just am very eclectic. You know, I've also spent six months in Nepal adopting my son and the teachings of Buddha. And there's just a lot of teaching out there we can learn from. But I just think learning from each other like this, peer-to-peer sharing. Thank you for dropping in, being real, being vulnerable. And I feel a knowing that this will help people. It's helping me. So I guess there, I have my proof. (laughs) Well, it helped me too. So there you go. If if this was for no one else, it was for us. Yeah. Okay. Success, Ryan. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you, Nancy. I want to thank my guest, Ryan Sangelis. I want to thank my son who helped me with this music. I want to thank my listeners for your support emotionally, psychologically, and financially. If you want to support the podcast, that is so welcome because we would love to have we being me here. I would love to have an audio engineer. I think that'd be so cool. Hey, if you have a story to tell, reach out to me at www.nancynorton.tv. That's .tv like television. Okay, thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, take your trauma, take your pain, and play with it.